Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin, and this is episode 29 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Laurel Holding. Laurel is the Director of Program Development at Boulder Outdoor Survival School where she has been guiding extended backcountry expeditions and teaching primitive and traditional living skills for 20 years. You can visit the Carlina Show website at carlina.net to learn more about Laurel and link to the show notes. From there, you can find past episodes, connect on social media, and sign up for the mailing list. Thank you, Stephen Lorca, for video editing and production so we can post our episodes on the Carlina Show YouTube channel as well as the podcast. And now I bring you Laurel Holding. When I was a kid, one of the things that I thought would be amazing to grow up and be was an astronaut. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy, an astronaut, Jane Goodall, or a photographer for National Geographic. Or a park ranger. And actually, I've ended up kind of doing all of those things. And I realized the astronaut stuff comes in where I, I, I really enjoy going to really foreign environments and just, you know, yeah, that sense of exploration and being out of my element. So yeah. I, I, at some point I realized, oh my gosh, I am kind of an astronaut. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, let, yeah, let's go. I mean, I, yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, well, how about you tell me a little bit about um, about your childhood? Where where did you grow up, and what about your childhood led you to do what you're doing now? Um, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I actually grew up in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. um, but in my childhood. I remember there were still apricot orchards and my neighborhood, we didn't even have sidewalks or gutters, you know, it was just like no transition from the pavement to your yard. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously it's changed a ton since Mm -hmm. then, but my childhood was like still on the tail end of, you know, your parents kind of give you the boot after school and you roam around until dark, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of unsupervised and just outside, like riding your bikes around and wading in the creeks and catching crawdads and stuff like that. That was the Palo Alto that I experienced. Did Um, you have siblings? I did. I was the youngest of four, Mm -hmm. and now I'm the youngest of three. So that's a pretty good segue to what I have in, in hindsight tapped as probably uh, a big reason why I ended up doing what I do. Um, so when I was 12, our, our middle sister, Anne, committed suicide. Oh, wow. And it's a very difficult thing. Obviously, it's completely devastating um, to, to a family, uh, especially – I. I can't really imagine what, what that was like for my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, you know, made me who I am. Um, 
And ultimately, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, I just Mm -hmm. think that adversity is even like unthinkable adversity Mm -hmm. is in some ways the only way uh, that we achieve um, spiritual growth, Mm -hmm. uh, contentment, kind of a peaceful joy and happiness that it seems like we're all chasing. Um, we go to a lot of like comfy retreats, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, do yoga and eat clean and farm to table and stuff like that. But ironically it's, you know, in some ways what we may be missing is mm-hmm. some of this kind of struggle that uh, our ancestors encountered more, just more uh, regularly or you know, yeah. it's just part of, it was just part of life. And now we see it as, as just deeply unnatural mm-hmm. um, and to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. But anyway, so I grew up in the Bay Area and, and childhood was pretty rocky. Obviously, you know, suicides don't happen in a vacuum. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. that home environment that and so on and so forth. So it was rocky before, during and after. Mm-hmm. Uh And somewhere in there, well, I was 19, going to junior college in Los Altos, Mm -hmm. and uh, stumbled across a postcard for the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. And that's how I first heard about Boss. Oh. And you were 19? I was 19 and 20 by the time I showed up for my um, 14-day field course. Okay. And... So what was like? What was that like for you? Do you remember? Oh, the course itself. Yeah, I mean, um, so you found the the card, and then how soon after were you off to Boulder? Huh. Well, um, that was probably like in eight, early April, because uh, I was starting to feel like, oh gosh, you know, summer's coming up. What am I going to do with myself? Mm-hmm. Um, at that time wide open empty spaces were not like a comforting thought to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's, that's pretty common in our just, uh, society mm-hmm. at large. Uh, so I needed to do something productive with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my idea was because I was interested in archeology span and anthropology, and those are my favorite classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll get certified. I'll take a, I'll take a course to get certified to go on the dig circuit, mm-hmm. um, which is not as glamorous as it sounds. Apparently <laughs> it just, it's like, you know, developers doing a project, just kind of perfunctory. They just need to order these in, environmental assessments. And the dig is part of that just to make sure you're not on some like mm-hmm. amazing archeological site. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so I was digging through the junk mailbox of my anthropology professor and that and so I I picked up this pamphlet for UC Santa Cruz UC Davis they both have these programs found the postcard to boss it was totally nondescript it was like there was no photo on it it was just text it was like learn the skills of your ancestors um in the wilderness of southern Utah or something like that Mm -hmm. um I went home that night and just checked out on the web the course being a good girl. I checked out the UC Davis and UC Santa Cruz first and then I 
Mm-hmm. You know, kind of on a lark. It's like, what is this thing about? Mm-hmm. And basically, as soon as I, as soon as I landed on the boss uh, website, I was just uh, totally intrigued. Mm-hmm. And I think now, twenty years later, as an instructor, as a teacher, as a facilitator, now I know how powerful curiosity can be. And how you, you know, you really want to cultivate that or play to that or, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, it's a, it's a really powerful just tool in a teacher's right. um, toolkit. So, I, I mean, I was terrified as well, mm-hmm. like, because the, there's no food. Uh, at the time, you didn't even get a water bottle for the first five days you're hiking or five days on a 28 day course. Mm-hmm. Um, you're hiking through the desert. You don't have a blanket or a poncho. You basically have the clothes on your back, a knife and a cup, a tin cup, you know, mm-hmm. back, back in those days. And I was just like, Oh my God, you know, I was, um, you know, compared to my peers, I was in an environment that even back then was pretty affluent, but my family didn't feel affluent. So, mm-hmm. but that being said, I still obviously had a totally comfortable, um, not psychologically comfortable, but mm-hmm. physically comfortable upbringing. I had never gone 24 hours without eating before, much mm-hmm. less 48 or 72. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never, I probably never even been dehydrated. Um, so I wasn't sure that I was quote unquote tough enough. Mm-hmm. I just was intrigued and thankfully, you know, just was willing to follow that instinct. Um, but I didn't really know why. And if you'd asked me, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you why. Mm -hmm. And that trip was how long? That was 14 days. Like I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go whole hog and sign up for the 28 day, like a month course. I think that was just (laughs) terrifying. And I called them up and at the time, uh, Ford church, who is still a friend, and colleague uh, answered the phone and told me that the 28 days were all sold out for that year. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll settle for the 14 days. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah. And unbeknownst to me, uh, that is how boss recruits instructors oh. um, is through students that get, you know, like basically it's the most rig, <laughs> one of the most, I was going to say the most rigorous, but I don't know what the Navy SEALs get up to, right? And how Uh they interview candidates. But Uh as far as like an extended interview process, I would say a boss field course is pretty, (laughs) pretty rigorous about, you know, filtering out potential um, new staff members. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you change over the course of those 14 days? Well, I that's a good question, you know, cause I, like any 20 year old, it's kind of a, kind of uppity, kind of a punk. I mean, kind of a depressed uppity punk, mm-hmm. um, but still, you know, 20 years old, you're full of piss and vinegar and you think you've got it all figured out. Um, mm-hmm. and you're annoying as hell quite often. Uh, I'm sure I was no exception and I'm sure I was still kind of a punk at the end, but 
it softened me somehow. And I see that a lot. Uh, I have seen that in the past two decades with the hundreds of students that I've um, hiked with out there since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, type A people, super successful in their lives or not, you know, just all kinds of people. But, mm-hmm. um, well, to give you an example, uh, I once had um, an F-18 navigator on a course and he was an Iraq war veteran mm-hmm. um, and you know tough right and fit mm-hmm. and kind of stoic as you would expect mm-hmm. um, so on the 14 and 28 day courses our longer field courses we do have a large animal processing component on those courses. It used to be uh, not advertised on the website. So for example, I had no idea that that was going to be a part of my experience. So when the instructor said, you know, get your knives, your sharpeners, your water bottles, and we're going to go for a silent hike and we're hiking along, we come up this hill and crest the hill. And I see this sheep tied to a tree with a shovel like jammed into the ground next to it. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) You know, I did not sign up for this. Uh, I was a vegetarian at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, which was my response to finding out about, you know, that was my youthful... um, Rebellion, maybe? (laughs) Rebellion. I mean, those early efforts to live a moral life, Mm, Yeah, you know. And so basically I had found out about the conditions in factory farms the way that we produce meat industrially. And I, I, as someone who feels a connection to animals and I always have, if I called myself an animal lover, I just didn't see how those things could be compatible. Right. Um, so I thought, yeah, kind of in protest or, you know, talk, you know, Mm -hmm. voting with your dollar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was like, Whoa, this is like some kind of cult. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thing I'm yeah okay okay they're they're just gonna lecture us about meat under cellophane in the, in the supermarket and they're gonna like give us a hard time about where do you think it comes from and then they're gonna stay our hand at the last minute you know <laughs> uh-huh. um but that's that's not what happened so that's just a little background basically so fast forward to well well, well so what what did okay. ha- what did happen <laughs> <laughs> So we, we draw straws, basically. They, no one has to participate if they don't want to. And it's helpful nowadays that it's on on our website and it's out in the open. So no one, sh- you know, should be surprised. Uh-huh. Um, so presumably they're open to the experience or maybe even keen on some level. Mm-hmm. for that experience when they sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we have vegans, we have vegetarians take our courses, and it is totally optional. Like, you don't have to participate, you don't have to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, typically we, you know, we introduce it, we try and... Uh, <laughs> this term used to annoy me from grad school, but scaffold... 
you know, put some scaffolding around this experience and then uh-huh. ask who would like to draw straws to be the person who dispatches the animal. Uh-huh. Um, which we do in a very old fashioned, but very effective, very humane um, way. And so, yeah, you raise your hands and, and then they draw straws and someone draws the short straw and is like the one wielding the knife. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone else is kind of just helping. Um, so I did not raise my hand to draw straws when I was a student. Um, I, I was just far too nervous and lacked confidence um, that I could do the deed effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <laughs> yeah, looking back, it's, I, I, I did, I could have, um, but I was, yeah, I just mm-hmm. wasn't confident. So in any event, um, yeah, the instructors did not stay our hand. Um, it was it was very intense and still is to this day, even though I I have accounted for dozens of um, elk, deer, uh, sheep, and you know just fish, mm-hmm. but um, it's still intense. Mm-hmm. And I bawled my eyes out, uh, and then. And then we used shards of obsidian to skin it and gut it, and then we hung up the carcass. And then, and then I, and then it was just like any lamb carcass you'd see in a butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I had had fairly young acquaintance with with kind of un, you know, uh, death, mm-hmm. I guess for lack of a better word, but yeah. I'm trying to categorize the kind of death that it was. I mean, it was sudden, it was violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was totally out of touch with, um, the cycle of life and death and, you know, the true cost of a meal Mm-hmm. And the true implications of our our continued existence that it literally could not could not be mm-hmm. uh, without the sheep or the the carrots or you know life basically life feeds on life and there's no way around it mm-hmm. um, and I so it that was. You know, I think some of those tears were just pent up, were like tapping into grief, mm-hmm. kind of like a universal well of grief that not just my sister, but I don't know. I, I think, mm-hmm. I think that's part of life. So I feel that, you know, I feel that every time I kill a fish um, or a deer Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just feel that yeah. again. Yeah. And, but that first time was particularly intense. Um, mm-hmm. so, and then, and then we made use of every part of it. I, I was amazed to see this, this once living animal basically 
transition to the next phase of of its existence and to, to see the hooves turn into rattles and musical things and mm-hmm. the bones turn into tools and all the parts that you can eat that even though I, I'm half Chinese, so I did grow up eating things like um, duck tongues and pig ears mm-hmm. and uh, like pork blood and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. but still I hadn't had that, that direct vivid firsthand, like my hands in there. Um, cleaning nice. intestines or cleaning the stomach and baking or boiling bread in the stomach. And it's just like, we really can use so like basically every part of the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So and that was powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so was it at this point when you said the, the Iraq um, veteran uh, had his correct. Okay. So, so tell me about that. Forward to, um, I don't know, 10, 15 years later. And he was taking, he was on a 14 day that I was leading, uh, with his sister actually. Um, yeah, super, super fit guy, stoic. Like I said, he pulled the short straw. Mm. Um, and, uh, he, he wept. Um, he was deeply moved and he said that later kind of, we have, you know, an opportunity to debrief or pass a talking stick around. Um, he said that, you know, the reality was that he, he was parts of these teams of, flight teams, you know, mm-hmm. F-18 fighter teams that had killed people. Uh, and this, and this just kind of broke him open like an egg, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, those are the kinds of things that make me think that what I felt that somehow there was the sorrow for the for the end of the sheep's life on my course, there was definitely the sorrow and kind of the, the shock of, of the nuts and bolts of what that means, mm-hmm. but that it was tapping into something more universal as well and mm-hmm. helping, helping for that to um, have expression in a, in a healthier way, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, hearing what he said about his experience and kind of seeing that time and again, I, I, I think maybe my experience was not unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other, so let's see. So you were, you said you were 20 when you started your 14 day course. And then did you start working for, for boss right after, or did you have some time in between? So I had some time in between the season runs, like at that time, May through August, um, it's just, it was summer only. And now we do summer and fall, but mm-hmm. I took my course like at the end of the 2000 season. Mm-hmm. So I went home, had a winter, went back to my classes and, you know, my kind of work a day world. I was working at Crate and Barrel mm-hmm. selling fine stemware mm-hmm. and uh, fancy table runners. Uh, 
that's how I paid for my boss course actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just kind of went back to, to my normal life. And I, I mean, I was still pursuing my undergraduate degree, you know, I didn't want to totally, uh, throw all caution to the wind about, mm-hmm. I didn't know where this was going to lead, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I came back in the 2001 season and I apprenticed for 12 weeks that season. I did two 28 day courses, a 14 day skills course, a seven day field course. I was basically in the field mm-hmm. continually for, um, three months. So they knew they wanted to recruit you, uh, during that 14, your first 14 days. I'm actually not sure. And I would actually say maybe not because it was somewhat unconventional. Um, I, I, I had an, you know, I felt so alive on my course. I felt so horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd never felt like quite so sick or tired or cold Mm -hmm. or or hot. I mean, it was, it was horrendous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, horrendously wonderful. Um, but still, you know, we were in this amazing, spectacular landscape and I'd be like dry heaving and kind of look up at the way that the late evening sun was just turning this, the white Navajo sandstone, kind of this rosy golden Mm -hmm. hue and just feel my spirit, um, sore, mm-hmm. even though physically I felt so shitty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I had a great time. I think I was like completely enthusiastic. I, I sort of went for everything with gusto. And, and then at the end, when we woke up on the final morning, um, I remember my first thought when I opened my eyes was like, oh, I wish there, I wish we had 14 more days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not get invited to be an apprentice. I, we were getting piling into the shuttle to get driven back up to like Provo Salt Lake area. Mm-hmm. And there was the other students were kind of talking about how Billy and Caroline had gotten invited back to be apprentices and everyone was congratulating them and stuff. And I was like, wait, wait, that's a thing. <laughs> you can, you can work here. <laughs> like, I was like, I want to be an apprentice. And I went, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. So I came back, I flew back out a month later, uh, Mm -hmm. and I met up with a bunch of my instructors at a primitive skills gathering up in Idaho called rabbit stick. Mm -hmm. And I was such a groupie, such a shameless, shameless groupie, (laughs) um, like, you know, sidling up to the cool kids and being like, guys, what? (laughs) 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 Just such a barnacle. Um, (laughs) but basically like midway through that, I, I was hanging out with Josh, who was one of my instructors and he was also the owner of the school at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I basically just said like, Hey Josh, what do I have to do to be an apprentice? And he said something like, Oh, you got it. You know, it's cool. You're in, you know, um, (laughs) But I guess, yeah, like if I hadn't, you know, skipped school, uh, I had transferred to UC Berkeley at that time. And I basically like bailed on a week of classes to 
um, go to this rabbit stick, which was actually 9-11 had just happened oh. right before um, that rabbit stick, I remember. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I uh-huh. guess they just thought, uh-huh. all right, she's determined. Maybe we didn't think she was like instructor <laughs> material before, but look, she's so desperate. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so when did you lead your first course? What year was it? As a full fledged, uh, instructor, no apprentice before Mm -hmm. the title, Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been the following year, 2002. Tell me some, some stories, some things that stick with you. Gosh, gosh, there's so much. So just to give us like a sense of of, of the trip through the eyes of, you know, uh, this, the students and their experiences and the way they experienced, um, you know, the, the different parts of the trip. If there's anything that, that can kind of paint a picture of what a, a boss trip is like. Oh, sure. Well, so, um, you know, our, our kind of bread and butter experience is the, what we call the field course. And that's the one that's designed to be extremely physically, mentally demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one week, two weeks or four weeks long. And it's broken into phases and basically more or less the three different lengths kind of have the same phases. Uh, and they're just either compressed on a seven day or like really spacious on a 28 day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are yeah, on a 28 day, a few extra phases that you wouldn't find on a seven day, but essentially it's like the first day or five days, or it's, it's an unknown length of time basically, because it's called impact and it's the simulated survival scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea is that if you were in a survival scenario, like, you know, Nando Parado and the Uruguayan rugby team Mm -hmm. that crash landed in the Andes, and they're like boisterous, happy, heading to a tournament in Chile one moment, you know, and in the next moment they were, everything had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that kind of situation, you don't know when or if you're going to be rescued. You don't know where or when your next meal or water source might, might be found. Mm-hmm. There's just so much you don't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's hard for a lot of people, um, to give up mm-hmm. that regimented knowing, uh, that seems to get more intense. I don't know if you think so, but, um, it seems to me it gets more intense every year now that we have so many gadgets that can kind of like manage our, you know, down to the minute, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So basically, yeah, impact, no food, limited water, limited ability to transport water. Like I said, basically the clothes on your back and knife, um, moving lightweight through the desert, through the mountains. Our, our terrain runs from like 11 and a half thousand feet and above timberline and alpine and subalpine down to about 4,500 feet in the Colorado Plateau high desert. So pinion and juniper, sagebrush, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, obviously like iconic 
red rock desert canyons, narrow or tall, like plunging pour-offs and just swirls in the rock. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's outstanding. Uh, but it's also unforgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also very generous. So it's full of paradoxes. Anyway, <laughs> and we're teaching people fire by friction and edible and medicinal plants and, you know, how to make cordage, how to tie knots, how to pitch primitive and kind of more modern shelters with like tarps. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our cases, we use um, army surplus ponchos. Um, we teach people topographical map and compass, but not, not during that first phase. Mm-hmm. After impact, after successfully completing impact, um, we move into usually some uh, group expedition, and that's when we start actually handing over the reins to the students. Like prior to that, they kind of are, um, kind, you know, they kind of have to blindly follow us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of trust there, and I don't, I don't personally take that lightly. Uh, but group expedition is all about them taking over, um, deciding when we pack up and the pace that we set. And, you know, basically we're starting to prepare them for when, uh, we won't be there. Mm -hmm. So group expedition, we continue teaching, we're traveling, they're learning how to navigate. Um, then on the longer courses, there's the, the sheep kill, Mm -hmm. um, then there is a, at some point, a solo phase, which can be up to five days on a 28 day mm-hmm. course. And that's where everyone is alone. Um, hopefully by then they know everything they need to know to stay comfortable and safe. Uh, and then there's a student expedition. So instructors are like, all right, guys, you know, it's up to you. We hope that we've imparted everything mm-hmm. that you need to know. And they go off and have their point-to-point adventure. I mean, yeah, on the 28-day, again, it can be up to five days long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a real proving ground. And there's a few other curveballs and twists and turns and surprises along the way that I won't, I yeah. won't uh, give away. Because, remember, curiosity, yeah. history, it's very right. powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? So tell me about the, the people who sign up for a boss. What... Um, is there like a common characteristic that these people share? I honestly don't know that there is mm-hmm. or what I would say it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, the youngest student I've ever had was 16, although that was many years ago. And now we, we only accommodate like adults 18 and up. Mm -hmm. So let's say 18 to the oldest student I ever had was 70. Mm -hmm. Um, you clearly college students have, you know, some time to play around with, although less and less, gosh, they're booking all of their time. They're booking every day down to the minute as well. Mm -hmm. I feel bad. I wish they had the opportunity to just get kicked out and roam around until sunset (laughs) a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, you know, lawyers and doctors, there's, there's moms, housewives, house husbands, um, blue collar, white collar, uh, 
mostly men, but we're working to try and change that. But historically it's been like 80, 20. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's amazing. Like you might have a, a big oil, uh, executive Mm -hmm. basically just clicking with this radical environmentalist activist, um, flower child and, (laughs) and they just get along so well. And basically we have to rely on each other out there. And, and all that stuff doesn't really matter. What matters is someone's character. Um, Mm -hmm. people quickly distinguish themselves or not by the small, simple things of like, Oh, collecting firewood for the group or, you know, just like what kind of work ethic you have or whether you offer to lighten someone's load when they're struggling one day. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the things that distinguish people and give them, I mean, sort of a status, not a status, a respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And therefore, like what they do in their front country lives doesn't really seem to matter. And plus, we don't have watches, sunglasses. Everyone's wearing the same kind of like they got it from REI or mm-hmm. something, you know, <laughs> the kind of generic outdoorsy clothes, like the convertible zip off pants and stuff, mm-hmm. um, quick dry bucket hats. And so everyone kind of looks the same, too. So you don't have like, I don't know, the Rolex watch broadcasting your, you know, you don't have these little cues mm-hmm. that we normally pick up on about to know where we stand or, mm-hmm. you know, where someone comes from or whatever. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really fascinating, um, experiment yeah. Petri dish, just to kind of stripping all that stuff away and seeing mm-hmm. people get along on a very human level. Could you give me an example of, maybe two people who were, who seemed like unlikely allies who, um, you know, established a bond with each other, an unlikely bond. Can you give me an example? Uh, For sure. I mean, that one was not theoretical when I talked about the big oil exec. He was, uh, this was a 14, a different 14 day. He was from Texas and, um, yeah, worked for, I think, Exxon or one of those, mm-hmm. um, unabashed about, about it. Um, and then on the other hand, we had, uh, I think that was, his name was Tom. And then there was Melissa and she was like basically a career environmental activist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like pretty far right and she was pretty far left, but they just really clicked everyone on that group did. Um, and I'm actually still in touch with at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. they just laughed and they were able to kind of tease each other, but in a, in a fond way. And I think by the end, they just grew to really, um, respect and appreciate the other, even though, you know, they may not agree. Mm-hmm on certain things. I mean, it happens a lot. There was a recently a gal in a course who she's, so there was a, there was a big beefy guy and he worked for UPS 
in the warehouses. I think he packed the trucks uh, and he may have been a driver as well. Um, and he, he was sort of a mystery, like not a man of many words. So I didn't really necessarily, you know, get a clear sense of him right away. Um, then there was a gal who, uh, was from Peru and she, she was like, uh, it seemed like the gentleman was sort of more of that school where you don't really talk about your, about spirituality. Mm -hmm. And she was more of a, from coming from a place where it's like, ah, spirituality is like your favorite topic, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, like maybe, I don't know, Mm -hmm. just talk about your latest (laughs) ayahuasca ceremony and things like that. You know, it just, (laughs) they were just so seemingly different. Um, Mm -hmm. and I kind of got the sense that he, he wasn't too convinced, um, about her at Mm -hmm. first. It didn't help that she was like four hours late to the orientation for the course. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think he, he, you know, like she kind of started out behind a little bit with him. Mm -hmm. I thought, I, I, I'm not sure about that, but Mm -hmm. that was my perception. Um, but there we were on impact, right? It's unseasonably hot for September and we've been hiking for quite some time and, and basically, um, come to find out that he didn't fill his water bottle at the last water source that we had, which was like an hour or more ago. Mm -hmm. And the sun's beating down on all of us. We're all kind of like, you know, uh, (laughs) babying our water bottles, like including myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, (laughs) of course I had the advantage of knowing like just how far the next water source actually was. And it was not close. So even I was aware of like, you know, my own water. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had been out of water for a couple hours. And he was like really dehydrated by then and basically starting to um, just not be able to keep up. And he started to feel sick, like nausea. That's, that's mm-hmm. a, a sign of, of pretty advanced dehydration at that point. Anyway. She, um, he had to stop to rest. We were separated from the group. I was with him. I found out all of this about, you know, him being dry and everything. And we came back to the group and, um, basically filled them in on the details. And she, this gal just sort of, I mean, without hesitation, every, everyone was hurting, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's water bottles were not very full. And there was this kind of ripple that went through of like, oh, shoot, you know, I could tell everyone felt like, okay, we need to help this guy out. But she just didn't even hesitate. She just like, I mean, it was the most, she didn't even make a big deal out of it. It was like, I don't know. (laughs) It's just what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she just gave him her water. Um, She had a lot. And I, it's, women do tend to do better with the water I find. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, she had enough to spare to give him and he just like glugged it down. Like he was so thirsty. He like normal politeness kind of went out the window. Like he was just, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and she just never said another word about it. 
Um, wow. And from that moment on, I think like it just complicated his maybe some, I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe assumptions that he had made. And, uh, by the end I felt like he had kind of taken on a, like a protector mm-hmm. role and they, again, kind of became unlikely friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's really cool. It's really humbling to see. Yeah. Um, have you had any emergencies out on the field or anything that's that's come up that um, that you had to handle that are a little out of the the normal? <laughs> oh. oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Any any that you want to share? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's helicopter evacuations. Luckily, I've only personally had one of those, but I have supported a couple others. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh luckily she she was okay she the diagnosis was gastroenteritis but basically she had like abdominal crippling abdominal pain Mm -hmm. that had gone on for more than 12 hours Mm. and she basically she's like I don't think that I can hike further and where we were was so rugged and isolated that no Horses could get there, no ATVs, so there was no other way to evacuate her. Because I, I just asked her, I was like, listen, there's no other way out of here but via helicopter. So, And that's, mm-hmm. can you walk? And she's like, I, I really don't think I can. Mm-hmm. So we had, to, we had to call in a, a chopper. And it's crazy where they can land those things. <laughs> um, we were in a very sandy area. We kind of found one opening like between a bunch of really tall ponderosas. And um, after they confirmed that they, I was talking, I was on the phone with the dispatch and they said it should be there in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, have someone with a headlamp or something to mark the landing zone. So I had my um, second instructor, Jeremy, like post up where we figured the landing zone would be. And then I went around to the other students just to let them know, like, hey, there's going to be, like, a giant metal insect uh, <laughs> descending upon us uh, pretty soon, just so you're not, mm-hmm. you know, just just so you know. Um, after it was all said and done, it was, like, one in the morning, and, and Jeremy, my colleague, who, who kind of, like, guided the helicopter in, he just says, you know, I, I learned something today. I said, what's that? He's like never apply chapstick just before guiding a helicopter in to land in a very sandy area. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that was an occasion where everything, you know, worked out for the best, all things considered, but we've had more serious, um, incidents as well. Uh, we lost a student in 2006. Um, can you tell me about that or what the circumstances were? Um, yeah. Um, he was one of 12 on a 28-day field course, and this was their first full day uh, on impact. And it was in – it was – there was a, like a brutal heat wave that was going through – 
Because I remember on that same day in the Grand Canyon on an outward bound course, unfortunately, there was a 14-year-old girl who had gotten separated from her group and she actually um, just died from uh, mm-hmm. dehydration. So it was in the triple digits. It was, it was brutal. Mm-hmm. And then um, he had... You know, this, it is kind of hard to talk about because I, um, you know, his mother and his brother, his family and friends were devastated, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I find it hard to talk about the details of No, that's okay. Yeah. of it just just out of respect because there were many variables and factors that went into it mm-hmm. and some things that we mm-hmm. we had control over and some things we we didn't have control over. Mm-hmm. Um Mhm. But yeah. We, he's still, uh, at the forefront of our hearts and minds mm-hmm. and, um, the f- family, actually we, we collaborated or we had, a, a scholarship for the 28 day in his name for mm-hmm. several years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately the, f- you know, the family, they just didn't want it happen again if there was anything that they could do or that we could do or that we could learn from mm-hmm. you know they just they wanted that to happen but um mm-hmm. ultimately it seemed like they recognized that mm-hmm. had like dave was the kind of guy that he probably would have become an apprentice mm-hmm. he was it sounded like he was absolute like boss was just so up his alley mm-hmm. um it was it was a perfect storm of <laughs> yeah. terrible things but yeah um, and so would the group debrief, get together and debrief after something like that yeah. or? Yeah. So, I mean, again, they're, they're pretty remote. So I was part of the crew that hiked in to kind of extract this group. Mm-hmm. I just provide support to the instructors. Um, and we brought, we brought the group, the remaining 11 students back to campus and, basically put it to them that if, you know, obviously if they were just done and, and ready to go home, that to- makes total sense. And we'd, you know, but mm-hmm. six of them actually wanted to, to go back out mm-hmm. and, and like complete their experience. And so I ended up um, taking over as the head instructor for the remaining students. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we had, we had, we all had a really powerful experience out there for, well, what became a 21 day course, I guess, at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so one of the, one of the students on that course is now on our board of directors and he went on to become an instructor as well mm-hmm. at the school. Um, and there's, there's just lots of, lots of connections there yeah 
lots of goodness that came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Just a reminder that it's, it's real. Mm-hmm. You know, we, um, the school has like a pretty, uh, a pretty sterling safety record considering, you know, yeah. If you compare vis-a-vis like, I guess, Knowles or Outward mm-hmm. Bound. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, because we're small, um, mm-hmm. we just take it, we just take it to, I don't know, we just yeah. take it to heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so could you give me an example of, um, some of the things people say when they, when they arrive for, for a trip, like, what are they, what are they looking for? What are they, um, like, what are some of their motivations for, for doing a boss trip? Um, so you'll, you'll hear people say, uh, or write, you know, they're writing on their application that they're just craving unplugging mm-hmm. and just kind of getting away from it all a lot of people will say they are they are really looking for these skills they want to know how to take care of themselves and take care of their families in case of you know just something unexpected um and you know more than 80 percent of americans nowadays live in or near cities Mm -hmm. um and we outsource so much of what we used to kind of do to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of a tenuous situation. Like, and mother nature still has a thing or two to say about it. Like hurricane Sandy, right? Mm -hmm. New York city, one of the greatest cities in the world. Suddenly it's like, there's no, there's no power there. You know, that infrastructure is pretty fragile basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some people seem to be kind of aware of that and uncomfortable with that. And they are like, well, I'll go, I'll go to the survival school and learn the skills uh, that I need. Um, funnily enough, so much of the time, what they say they're there for mm-hmm. is not well, it's like the Rolling Stones song, right? Mm-hmm. You may not get what you want, but you tend to get what you need. And sometimes, quite often, it's it's a bit of a surprise. But I think that's actually part of part of the power of it mm-hmm. um, is that it's surprising. Yeah, um, it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning um, about the adversity and the struggles to mm-hmm. create spiritual growth. So could you elaborate? Could you go into that a little? Yeah. Oh, sure. I can. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I, uh, so I don't know if you've heard of the monks of Mount Athos. It's, it's like the, the Athos Peninsula in Northern Greece. They're totally cloistered, isolated, all male. In fact, they even limit the livestock, mm-hmm. I think mainly to male animals. They allow female birds songbirds like I don't know how they control that but anyway so it's a <laughs> the a monastic brotherhood um and 
of interest in part because they have incredibly low levels of diseases that we associate with, you know, stress and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so on. Uh, so they've been studied for that, right? Because we're always looking for that kind of mm-hmm. elixir of youth. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, like ideally one that we could package into a pill, but mm-hmm. never mind. Um, <laughs> so, so I was reading an interview with one of these monks and he is saying basically this, their secret or like the key to their their health is that they just have incredibly low levels of stress. And he talked about the body and the mind being like a bridge and all the activities of our lives, our obligations, our, the things we like we do or mm-hmm. whatever is like traffic over the bridge. And if you increase the traffic, uh, at some point you'll hit the limit of the bridge. So if you need or want or plan to increase the traffic, you had better, reinforce the bridge mm-hmm. or if the bridge is starting to like be a little shaky then you need to reduce the traffic and I really loved that image because it was so simple mm-hmm. and it made so much sense like it made intuitive sense um but I've actually kind of um questioned it a little more recently um because there's such an industry like the self-care industry, for example, is like bil- worth billions. Mm-hmm. Right? I was mentioning kind of yoga retreats or, you know, um, raw food cleanses and uh, getting massage to like, you know, ease your stress, like just basically stress relief and, Oh, mindfulness. And mm-hmm. that's kind of an industry. And I'm, I, I'm, I think all those things are good and I think we are that's it's uh it's not that simple. Mhm. So um have you heard of the the Polish psychiatrist uh, Dobrovsky? The name sounds familiar. Yeah, so he was uh, born in like 1905, something like that. He was, he lived through the world wars and Mm -hmm. he was a contemporary of Adler and Freud, Mm. um, and Viktor Frankl. Oh yeah. And so his, he developed the, what he called the theory of positive disintegration. But you know how Erickson talked about, um, the stages of like human development and mm-hmm. you know it seems mm-hmm. like a lot of folks try and create like a unified theory of like the yeah. stages of human whatever mm-hmm. so his was positive disintegration basically he felt like um there's roughly like five stages of development the mm-hmm. first two stages are basically constrained by um our our sort of self-serving more primal uh goals and, and societal expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, this phases one and two would be where, you know, you keep your lawn tidy because you're concerned about what the neighbors will think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, 
it would be unthinkable to to deviate from certain norms, like to laugh at a funeral, for example, mm-hmm. um, because you're supposed to cry at funerals and laugh at weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, this is these two stages are where you might hear people say like, yeah, I was speeding, but everybody speeds mm-hmm. or, well, I was just following orders, basically kind of, um, abdicating that responsibility to, to society, mm-hmm. um, to progress to higher levels of development. Um, basically stages where you have forged your own value system Mm-hmm. painfully with great intention. Um, and those values may or may not be perfectly aligned with, um, what was handed down to you. Um, but the only way that you pass from one stage to the next is through some kind of crisis, mm. uh, basically a disintegration of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a positive disintegration if you use it um, to gain the next level. But <clears throat> that's good news. I feel like it, it is basically before there was post-traumatic growth, mm-hmm. which is kind of gaining some you know, following nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, before post-traumatic growth, there was Dabrowski and positive disintegration. Um, that adversity was necessary for, for full human development. Yeah. That's the good news. I feel like that's really good news and positive Mm -hmm. because, um, we don't have to see tragedy as our enemy. Mm Um, we can find meaning and value in seemingly, seemingly unredeemable things. Yeah. Um, the bad news is that he did not, he did not think most people were destined to progress past levels one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what makes the difference is like what he called developmental potential, but a lot of the things that we would, you know, that Freud would call neuro- neurotic, mm-hmm. but basically like if you're a little bit sensitive, if you're a little bit anxious, mm-hmm. if, um, you're a little bit prone to depression, then you're ripe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're ripe to make the most of adversity as long as you survive it. Right. Mm-hmm. But here's another good piece of news that I want to, I want to make sure everyone <laughs> make sure I say, which is just that you and I and everyone listening, we would not be here if we didn't come from a long unbroken line of survivors. Um, so I think that's, that's really hopeful. Um, so back to the, the bridge, the mind and the psyche, the body is the bridge and the traffic over the bridge. So Mm -hmm. there's this whole industry that's sort of like telling us, Oh, you should, you should say no. Um, you know, self-care, be selfish, these things, which Mm -hmm. I get, I I kind of get the intention behind it. But Mm -hmm. I think we're forgetting that actually heavy traffic on the bridge, a certain kind of heavy traffic Mm -hmm. may be actually exactly what we need. And maybe 
in fact, to take it a step further, having the bridge fall apart maybe isn't the thing that we need to des- you know, avoid at all costs. It might be exactly the thing mm-hmm. that we need. Um, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. So do you, do you think that people, one of the motivations for, for doing a trip like boss is so that they can get past stage one and two, like they feel kind of like robotic, like their life is just so controlled and they want to feel alive again or tap into that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Carly. Um, yeah, I have my suspicions, right? Because, but it's hard. Uh-huh. You've asked me questions, you know, in this interview where I'm like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to come up with something yeah. because that's what we do. Um, and like, you know, they've shown that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have our motivations, we do stuff and we make up reasons why after mm-hmm. the fact we confabulate. Um, that's, that's natural. So, mm-hmm. but ultimately, yeah, I do wonder I do wonder whether deep down that is a big reason. Like people just, some people, maybe it's people with Dubrovskian developmental potential. I don't know who knows, right? (laughs) Maybe they do feel like something's missing. Something's not quite clicking. I'm I'm not sure. And I'm hesitant, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I can say for myself, when I was 19 or 20, I definitely felt like something was, was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have, I have students who come through the boss experience. They, they do great. They're, they're awesome. They, they get it. And then they say, you know, I love my job as a data analyst. Mm-hmm. I don't mind living in a city, <laughs> you know, and, and they're, they're happy. It's not like they're having this like epiphany, like, Oh my God, my, my life is a lie. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know mm-hmm. every, you know, it's sometimes it's like that. People have total, you know, they quit their jobs. They change mm-hmm. a lot of things, but a lot of times they, they just kind of go back and I like to think, and I do hear back that they, they just feel calmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a greater appreciation for the small things mm-hmm. while at the same time not sweating the unimportant small things quite so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so are you, how old are you? Uh, 38. 38. Okay. So you're younger. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll be 40 and oh, gosh, next month. Um, so, oh gosh, thanks. I think. (laughs) So, um, so what, so what's, what's next for you? Do you plan on, on working at boss and doing this forever? Um, what, you know, what, what, what do you have in, what do you have in, in mind for your future? I, I kind of, uh, my ambition nowadays is, is to lead a somewhat quiet life. Um, my friends might guffaw uh, and say there's nothing quiet about the life you lead, Laurel. But <laughs> to me, um, you know, I, I, I live here in Boulder, Utah. I made it my home. 
Um, I love the big open sky and the wide open spaces and the quiet Mm -hmm. and the dark. You know, we have some of the darkest night skies uh, in the country. Mm I, yeah, I, my ideal would just be to kind of sit by the fire, reading a good book and every once in a while, uh, hunting an elk, uh, and maybe moose up in Alaska. I'd like to hunt moose in Alaska. That's what's next for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what would you, what would you recommend to people who maybe they can't take 14 days or 28 days from work, but they, they want to feel more connected and have those, you know, real experiences and maybe move from that stage two to the stage three. What, what would you recommend to someone? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, the seven day field course, I have to say can, and is absolutely can, can be life changing. Um, in fact, just yesterday, I heard from a long-lost alum who took a course in 2001, a few months before September 11th, mm-hmm. and she just wrote about how she knew exactly what to do. She stayed calm. She was able to be of service to other people who needed help or aid, and you know, basically that she drew a direct correlation both then and still now, Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, you know, almost 20 years later Mm -hmm. uh, about her boss course. And she took a seven day boss course. Um, and yeah, so I, I routinely hear from people who took a seven day, but even short of that, I would just say in general, I feel like, just uh, taking yourself out of your comfort zone is is kind of like the common ingredient. You know, you don't have to necessarily come out to boss, but pushing yourself to do something that you're you're not totally comfortable or you know a hundred percent convinced that you're capable of. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's those are the margins where. Um, where we learn, where we grow, where we feel alive. Um, I don't tend to think that it happens when we're really comfortable and catered to and well within our comfort zone or surrounded by the people that we're most comfortable with, you know, so switch things up, be the fish out of water. Um, and that's, that's what I would, I would say, don't be afraid of that. And don't, (laughs) don't be afraid to fall apart. It might be exactly what you need. Yeah. Um, is there anything, anything else you wanted to mention? I, (laughs) this was, this conversation was just so interesting. We've gone over like 20 minutes. So I apologize for taking (laughs) extra time, but it was just, it was just so, so captivating. But is there anything, anything else that, that you wanted to share? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll just, just close with um, one of my favorite quotes from Viktor Frankl. And it sounded like you 
we're all familiar with. Yeah, man yeah. search man's search for meaning. Is that the his book? Correct. Yes, yes, I yeah. read that I read that a couple of months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh great. Okay. Well then you know that he's a Holocaust survivor, so mm-hmm. you know, when he speaks to suffering and things like that, uh, you know, I yeah. tend to listen. Yeah. Um and interestingly, of course, being a contemporary of Dubrovsky, of Floyd, of Adler, uh, Frankel rejected Adler's notion that humans are motivated by a will to power. And he rejected Freud's notion that we are motivated by a will to pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as, as you know from reading his book, like, uh, he advocated, well, he believed instead that humans are motivated by uh, a will for meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, of course, that a man who knows uh, why can survive almost any how. Mm-hmm. So if your struggle has purpose and meaning, it ch- changes the, the tenor of it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells the story of this old widower that he was counseling who was, who was depressed, suicidal because his wife of 50 years had recently died and they had been, you know, one of those inseparable, um, pairs. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's like, that's, that's a survival situation to lose your mate mm-hmm. like that. Um, so Victor Frankl asked him, you know, how, how do you think your wife would have reacted if you had, if you had died first? And the man said, oh, God, you know, it would have been awful. It would have just destroyed her. <clears throat> Frank, Frankl suggested, you know, that, that he had spared her that. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's not that his pain and grief or suffering was less, but all of a sudden it had an entirely different meaning. And, and all of a sudden this guy could feel proud, like in a way that he had spared his, his wife, his beloved, what he was himself feeling. Um, yeah, that's, that's really powerful. It is. Um, so I, and I'm personally of the belief that you can find meaning in any struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. if, if you choose to, mm-hmm. if you choose to, um, so, so the quote of, uh, I will close with, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Frankel, mm-hmm. which he says, um, that which gives light must endure burning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty powerful. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for for sharing um, this uh, this inc- this incredible journey and experience that that you've not only had yourself, but that you've witnessed of, in other people. 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I appreciate it.